So the sermon that I prepared today says that the title is Lament, War, and the Social Gospel. But after that went to print and I was crafting the sermon, I realized it's actually War, Lament, and the Social Gospel. I begin with some facts. Yesterday, the Washington Post reported that less than two months ago, Hawaii reinstated its Cold War era nuclear warning sirens amid growing fears of an attack by North Korea. So tests of the sirens were scheduled to be conducted on the first business day of every month for the foreseeable future. You can imagine how that must feel to the people living in Hawaii. But yesterday, around 8 a.m., a different kind of emergency alert arrived on cell phones across Hawaii, saying that a ballistic missile threat was inbound to Hawaii and people should immediately seek shelter. Forty minutes later, they received a second alert saying it was a false alarm. This is the atmosphere in which we are living. In South Dakota, a person can buy a bunker that was formerly used by the U.S. military. For $25,000, they will have a place to go in case of massive devastation to our world. In Kansas, an underground community is being prepared. People can opt for low, mid-range, or elite units. In case of disaster, they can go there, but they will need to work four hours a day to help run the community. In Eastern Europe, there is at least one private bunker that includes an indoor swimming pool. This is just some of the evidence that many people are worried about war, terrorism, and other disasters. While the ultra-wealthy may have one way of preparing for their physical needs, everyone is affected psychologically and spiritually. The sermon that I would like to offer to you today is in response to the general malaise or malaise might not be exactly the right word, but like a, um, a numbness or a, 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 an overwhelm, a numbness, that I see among us here in Charlottesville and in the United States. There have been cumulative events. The horror of August 12th. The continued tension with North Korea. A president who undermines respectful moral discourse. People who are still struggling to rebuild their homes after hurricanes and wildfires, the result of climate change, we could call them climate refugees. All of this and more creates a kind of exhaustion Someone recently told me that she feels immune to the news. She feels in her heart 
She said, like her phone must feel when she doesn't have her phone charger. As we go through our days, these tragedies and tensions affect us on some level, even as we attempt to continue with the routine of meals, activities, and sleep. For some of you, the impact is greater, depending on how much your daily life was upended by these events. But for all of us, there is a horror at the erosion of what we hold good and noble and hopeful. Part of the tension are the rips in the fabrics of friendship and family and community when violence happens publicly. First, consider the situation here in Charlottesville. We've all heard the accusations back and forth between city leaders about how things should have been handled differently. There's a lack of trust. And while that is publicly seen, what about a private loss of trust? Less visible within families, workplaces, friendship circles. You may have felt strongly that a certain response was right, but someone you usually rely on and agree with acted differently. A similar loss of trust is well documented in families that lived through the Civil War. Not only was there the obvious strain of whether a person fought for the North or South, but other strains, such as whether to share the family food with the soldiers who were traveling through, or to share the family food, which was in short supply, with people who were called runaway slaves. War and other forms of public violence have a ripple effect of tension and loss of trust within the ties that usually bind us, within the ties that usually bind us. As a response, people experience lament. I used the word lament in the title of the sermon because it gives a specific kind of name. One definition is to express regret or disappointment over something considered unsatisfactory, unreasonable, or unfair. Another definition is to mourn aloud an unalterable loss. Another definition, a song, a piece of music, or a poem expressing sorrow. And perhaps during the offering and meditation time, we might hear our musicians use their instruments to express sorrow. The human experience of lament is as natural as a thunderstorm moving across the mountains, as natural as streams converging to flow to the ocean. Whether one is lamenting about social harms in the wide world or a private lament, it is the same warm belly, tight heart, aching throat wail. 
And although lament is hugely uncomfortable, I encourage you to let it flow through you as part of the human experience of being fully alive. If we freeze, we miss out on some of our vitality. To be fully in lament, to be fully alive, we are then poised to have a fully alive response of action when the right time comes. So what kind of action should be taken? How can we respond to a climate of mistrust and threat? One source of wisdom comes from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. So tomorrow is the day that our nation has set aside to remember his inspiration. And I will quote now from a speech that he gave in 1967. It is entitled, Beyond Vietnam, referring to the current war situation of the time. He delivered this address in New York's Riverside Church to about 3,000 people. It was hosted by an interfaith anti-war committee called Clergy and Laymen Concerned. He said, the war in Vietnam is but a symptom of a far deeper malady within the American spirit. And if we ignore this sobering reality, we will find ourselves organizing clergy and laymen concerned committees for the next generation. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day, we must come to see that the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see, true compassion comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars, needs restructuring. In that quote, King is using a type of theology called social gospel. The word gospel can refer to many things, to the teachings of Jesus, to the good news about Christ, to a reading from the Bible, to a type of singing, or to, someone, or to something that is absolutely true. In this context, the social gospel refers to one strand of Christian teaching, especially that showed up in the United States among many Protestant preachers in the late 1800s. These preachers of the social gospel were saying that the good news of the gospel is not just about individuals, but about society. In the late 1800s, the preachers saw around them growing industrialization and urbanization. They saw individuals working long hours in factories while not having enough to feed and house their families in clean ways. 
They saw factory owners who were far away from the site and did not take action to keep safe working conditions. Their response, the response of the preachers as they reflected on the Christian message, was to look at the promised kingdom of heaven. Kingdom meaning a group of people living together in goodness. This theological interpretation led them to critique social and political systems and seek action for policies that led to more justice. And I just want to break down here that within the Christian tradition, a person can take the story of Jesus' teachings and this person called Jesus, who then was called Christ, who died on the cross, and a person can interpret that and make lots of different meanings out of it. So the social gospel is not focusing on the death on the cross. The social gospel is not saying that the death on the cross made way to open the heaven gates for individuals at the time of death. The social gospel is saying that the kingdom of heaven is about a group of people and that we here now need to be paying attention to the well-being of everyone. Across Methodist, Episcopal, Universalist, and other groups, people sought to understand what policy changes could help in the daily struggles of average folks. So I'm going to quote here from a book that was written in 1904, and this was written by a Methodist woman who was part of the missionary movement in Chicago. And she was documenting what she was seeing there in the urban setting among the, the workers. And the name of her book was The Burden of the City. And she wanted this documentation then to lead to policy change. So she said that the typical working family in Chicago was overcrowded, usually the father unable to find employment while the mother took extra jobs, milk for the babies was scarce, and young children were trying to care for younger siblings. Observing that, she wrote, to save one family, you have to face all the problems of the modern city, the health commission, the landlord question, charity groups which just produce more begging, faulty education, labor and wage problems, all are concerned in the condition of the things in one family living in one cellar. So she was trying to make a contrast to Christian groups that were participating only in aid and charity work to help people be clothed and fed. The social gospel is saying that another thing needs to happen too. Structures need to be changed in local government, education, access to health care and labor laws. So a few decades later, in 1908, the Unitarians organized within themselves an organization called the Fellowship for Social Justice to take action. And in 1909, the Universalists, they were then different groups, organized a Commission on Social Service. And later, the closing words of this service will be part of a declaration written by that Universalist Commission on Social Service. And you'll hear in that closing that they are making a connection between the conditions that support war, the conditions that support war that erode the well-being of the common good. 
Now, here in Virginia, in the year 2018, we face many of the same issues. All around us are challenges to daily life that could be improved with more just systems. We Unitarian Universalists are part of the social gospel movement. Whether or not in this day we claim Christianity, that thread and inspiration informs us. An opportunity lies on our doorstep. This past Wednesday, in our state capital, Richmond, just one hour away, a new legislative session began. For 60 days, you have opportunities to write your representatives, to visit your representatives, to join groups that are advocating for more just policies, to educate yourself and let your voice be heard and seek clear outcomes. We recently lamented the tax situation on a national level. On our state level, there is still some hope. And so I finish today encouraging you both to take action through legislative means, but also to be empowered to name your theology. I am guessing that some of you have coworkers who call themselves born, born again, or you have a neighbor who asks about your church and what you believe. Or perhaps your child tells you that other kids are talking about Jesus and they aren't sure what to say. You can tell your coworker, your neighbor, your child, that we are not focused on one person being saved by the suffering of Jesus and going to heaven. We are focused on many people being saved from suffering here and now and having heaven here on earth. At the beginning, I described bunkers built for billionaires. The social gospel does not call for individual salvation. The social gospel calls for systems that help all people be well now and for an end to war so that no bunkers are needed. Blessed be. Amen.